rapids. So you're at the end of your shift. It's about 20 minutes until you're out the door. You hear of an incoming CPR in progress, which is a PEA, a male in his late 20s. It was found down in the shower. He's intubated at the scene. He's got a GCS of three. He's reported by the ambulance on the way in. They're about five minutes out. This is all the information you have uh, before coming in. He was last seen about 18 hours ago. He was found by his, his uh, relative. There was apparently cocaine at the scene and several pill bottles. He was given some Narcan and Epi and Atropine times three without any success. He's in a uh, wide complex bradycardia, although I don't really have a rate. Uh, there's currently compressions and he, quote, feels cold. And that's, that's about all you have before coming in the room. So, uh, Chris, you got five minutes to get ready. Describe your room. Okay. A lot of extra help and meds. Right. Airway cart ready as well. Okay. Airway cart. Anything else you want in the room? You've got a few minutes, so you might as well stack it and get every toy you could possibly need. And, and if, if there's a trauma cart or whatever, anything that has the, any, any toy you could possibly want uh, to fix somebody in PEA, big needles uh, for decompression in, in case you need to do anything, central lines, ultrasound, anything you could ever possibly want. Temperature probes, a lot of extra nursing help, any, any extra hands, uh, while, while still minimizing the rubberneckers that want to come in and gawk. So the patient gets here. Uh, now it's six four, or, uh, yeah, 1844. Same stuff as a trauma workup, airway breathing circulation. So airway, uh, do a quick DL to check tube placement. Looks like it's in good place. Auscultate both sides of the lungs. Lung sounds are a little bit coarse, but, but they still uh, are equal. Breathing, bag valve mask by the RT, breath sounds again are coarse. Circulation, we're gonna work on that one a little bit. Disability, he's got a GCS of three, he's got no gag. He was not paralyzed and was not sedated prior to intubation. He has no pupillary reflex, pupils are six millimeters and equal. Exposure, he's cold and wet with no clothes. And you have a bedside ultrasound uh, that shows a very sluggish cardiac activity with no tamponade. So this is what we have, actually, a heart rate of 10. You know, I didn't even know heart rate could get down this low. But his heart rate is about 10, and that may be a little on the generous side, actually. His QRS complex is about half a second. Uh, sat and blood pressure are unobtainable, and his tympanic temperature was uh, 28.9. So... Jason, what do you want to do next? Is there any more information you'd like? Okay. Any any additional vital sign you want besides what you've already been given? Are you, are you happy with this? That's good, because his rectal temp is really 23. And so he was in the back of an ambulance. This happened um, and when it was actually about 75 degrees outside. And so uh, just by removing him from the environment, the TMs warmed up, but his core didn't change at all. So he's really, really cold. Uh, which brings us to our topic of accidental hypothermia. There's about 600 deaths per year in the MMWR, uh, anywhere between 500 and 700, depending on how cold the winter was. Two-thirds were male, which is pretty typical, I think, for, for accidental-type things. Many were elderly, primarily owing to the fact that they don't have as much of a, a thermoregulatory response, and they have a difficult time generating heat, and they also take medications that might cause them to become hypothermic and have other medical issues. About a quarter of them were at home, <clears throat> and the uh, mentally ill and alcoholics and substance abusers at, at very high risk 
because the intoxicants they ingest prevent them from shivering and prevent them from generating heat. This is a, a picture of Washington crossing the Delaware in late 1776, and they lost about 10% of their men to hypothermia uh, during this battle. It's, uh, we owe a lot of our, our hypothermia research and resuscitation research to wars, just like everything. This is uh, Hannibal crossing the Alps with his elephants, which is a, a foolish move because he takes Saharan elephants and he brings them up from the mountains. And he takes uh, 46,000 men to cross the Alps, and he lost about 50%. 23,000 died uh, from freezing. He also lost all but two dozen of his elephants, too. But he did arrive in Italy and uh, win this battle. Revolutionary War, where I talked about significant morbidity and mortality because of hypothermia. And actually, in Korea, 10% of all deaths were just because of hypothermia alone. There's accidental hypothermia, uh, and then there's traumatic hypothermia, and they definitely have two different categories because the mortality changes when you have trauma. Mild hypothermia, uh, 32 to 35, which is actually fairly cold. Moderate is 28 to 32 for accidents. Anything less than 28 is considered severe. Um, and obviously your mortality changes significantly, as does your physiology. For trauma, uh, everything gets bumped up quite a bit because of the coagulation uh, problems that Dr. Keeley was talking about. Mild hypothermia, 34 to 36. And by the time you get down to 35 degrees, your factor IX activity is about 65% of what it was when you were euthermic. Moderate of 32 to 34. When, you're, when your body temperature, your core temp gets down to 33, your factor IX activity is about 30% of what it was. And for severe hypothermia, less than 32, um, the mortality of a traumatic patient, a trauma patient that has a core temp of less than 32 or 32 or lower is nearly 100%. And your uh, clotting factor activity is about 5% of what it was when you were at 37. So this is how I remember things best. For mild hypothermia, uh, the physiologic response can be anywhere from confusion to complete, normal, alert and oriented. Uh, many people are lethargic. There's actually an increase in cardiac activity by about 30% cardiac output. Uh, in the preliminary stages of hypothermia because your body is trying to adjust. Metabolic demands goes up by up to 60%. You have an increase in peripheral vascular resistance because your body is trying to shunt blood to its core. An increase in anaerobic metabolism uh, and lactic acidosis. Increase in urine production from the cold diuresis because everything is shunted to the core. You have shivering, muscle cramps, the standard things that you see. We've all probably been in this stage at some point in time in Iowa in the past. There's moderate hypothermia, and this is, this is where you start to enter the pre-morbid conditions. This is where people begin to hallucinate. They display the paradoxical undressing where uh, out in the cold they'll start to take off their clothes. That is considered a, a grave prognostic indicator if someone's done that. Um, all the way down to unresponsiveness. Blood pressure and heart rate drop, and the heart becomes very irritable. The, the Hisperkinji fibers, SA node, AV node are very temperature sensitive. And so they can begin to show ectopy. Many of them develop atrial fibrillation at less than 32 to 30 degrees. Uh, you can have V-fib and uh, prolonged QRS and QT. They can last up to several weeks after the resuscitation if they survive. Um, the glucose frequently goes up significantly because the insulin uh, has very little activity. Urine output drops because the GFR drops as does the blood pressure. Clotting factor uh, completely bottoms out and the reflexes and shivering disappear. And so any reflex you may have to generate more heat uh, goes away completely. And then we get to severe hypothermia. 
most people are obtunded by the time they get down to this uh, range, either completely unresponsive or with a GCS between three and six. Uh, pupils become fixed. There's no brainstem function, although if you did an EEG, you'd still probably see some spikes and waves. Uh, there's cardiovascular collapse, extreme bradycardia, which is what we saw, fib, and then asystole is frequent as well. So regarding the cardiac instability, faster rewarming is better. Um, and aggressive internal core rewarming is a number needed to treat of about five to save one life. Um, there's no benefit of doing anything invasive in people that are otherwise hemodynamically stable and able to talk to you. Um, they may become asystolic during rewarming. That's an important thing to remember that I think I did not know, is that when they become asystolic, that's just a part of the cardiac irritability. And that can happen on and off. They can flip in and out of many different rhythms, including a, a bradycardic, uh, like a junctional rhythm, to a fine V-fib, to asystole, and they can bounce in and out. The heart is incredibly irritable. Core warming is always better because you put it right into the heart and your time to achieving sinus rhythm may be as long as a couple hours. There's no good research on this. Uh, all the case studies and case series maybe involve um, 14, 15 patients. And so the time is all over the map from reachieving a sinus rhythm after 15 minutes to three and a half hours. There's a CPR debate, um, and this guy had CPR, probably rightfully so, but in people with an organized electrical activity, any organized electrical activity, Regardless of whether or not they have a pulse, it's best to not. Um, if it is fibrillation or disorganized activity, they, they obviously need something. Or asystole, they need compressions. The optimal rate is probably closer to 40 to 50 per minute, not the, not the 100 that we're so used to. They just don't need that much perfusion. They're cold. Their metabolic demands are very low. There is no real limit on downtime or core temp limits. And people have been resuscitated with core temps as low as 14 degrees up in Scandinavia. Those have been kids. And at downtime, as long as three weeks, there was a guy in Japan a few years ago that was walking home from a party, intoxicated in the middle of February, got lost, was found three weeks later with no signs of life and no cardiac activity and was fully resuscitated with no uh, neurologic deficit. These are case studies. When you're working in a busy emergency department on a Saturday night and the patients are stacking up and up and up, this is not the time to be spending six hours of your time. You have to call in some help. Um, likewise, if you don't succeed, don't feel bad. There's a reason these are case studies, and they're not the norm. But um, the literature from Canada and Scandinavia is, is riddled with several of these success stories, and it's really remarkable. The people that survive frequently do so with no neurologic deficit. Also, no pressors, and this probably includes epi. Um, now, we used it, and uh, we... Uh, we're kind of grasping at straws in order to get something, but no pressors, no dopamine, no levofed. Let the blood pressure sit where it is. Um, this is actually an independent risk factor for mortality. That being said, when your mortality is already about 60 to 80 percent, a few percentage points more may not make a difference, but you're certainly not helping your cause. No antiarrhythmics, no amio, no procainamide. They're not going to be active at this temperature anyway. And no cardioversion until you get them a little bit warmer. This is not going to work. And you really only get a couple shocks at this before you really start to have no benefit whatsoever. And so no cardioversion until you warm them up as close to 30 as you can. So external rewarming, you're obviously going to get them out of whatever they're in, the water, the cold environment, warm blankets, not very effective. It's got a rewarming rate of about half a degree up to a degree 
centigrade per hour core. That's probably really pushing it. Um, it's very easy. You can throw warm blankets on people. You can give them something warm to drink. Uh, the cons is that it's negligible as far as this heat, tra heat transfer. And to warm someone up that's already down so far as far as their core temp, it would take well over a day by this mechanism. It only generates about 5% of the heat that you'd normally make by shivering anyway, so it really doesn't do a whole lot for you. And it's really only useful if somebody's mildly hypothermic or subjectively hypothermic. There's the active core. Um, this is what we, we primarily did here too. Uh, warmed IV fluids, as warm as you can possibly get it. And the Rangers warm up to 41, uh, but you can warm up much beyond that. And there's actually been no ill effects in fluids warmed up to 49 and even beyond. And so you can throw the bag in the microwave. You take your bag of LRNS and you throw it in the microwave <coughs> for several minutes. It takes a long time to heat up, and you just run that in. Those bags are perfectly safe in the microwaves. You can rewarm them up a little bit faster, a degree to a degree and a half an hour. It's readily available. Anyone can put in an IV or a cordis. Um, the cons is that you can't give somebody 12 liters of this stuff, and there's going to be a limited return eventually. Um, and you have to give the bag very quickly, otherwise it's going to cool at room temperature. Unless, even if you have it on a fluid warmer, you're going to have um, some limited returns unless you run it in very fast, because eventually it cools down to below the, the gold temperature, which you're trying to achieve. There's warm humidified air, which everyone talks about. Again, not very good at heat transfer, up to about a half a cc per hour, and that's via ET tube. Um, easy in some of its awake and alert, but again, uh, not very successful otherwise. Bladder irrigation, uh, you can transfer up to one cc per hour, easily accessible. Most of these folks are going to need a Foley anyway, but it's a very small mucosal area compared to every other place. And then the proximity of the rectal probe might make you feel like you're really making a big difference when you're actually not. There's peritoneal lavage, which is always an option. You have a nice big mucosal surface area in the belly. You can rewarm at a rate of up to 2 to 3 cc's per hour, although that's probably on the high side. Um, good heat transfer. It's very close to the core, but it's very invasive and very, very messy. And then thoracic lavage. And this is probably, in most hospitals where folks are going to work at, this is probably going to be the first, the first place to go. You can rewarm at a rate of up to 3 to 5 cc's per hour, just with this alone. It gets the blood directly into the core. There's a large uh, surface area with all the capillaries in the lungs. You can have direct exposure to the heart, uh, and it's readily available. Every hospital has chest tubes. Every hospital has scalpels. Uh, but it's very invasive, and by jamming chest tubes in haphazardly, you can ding a heart that's already irritable and precipitate an arrhythmia or systole. Very, very messy, as we'll talk about later, and it requires a lot of people and resources. This can really tax your emergency department like a pediatric code. I mean, this, this bogs down the whole system. And it's very difficult to maintain this during CPR if you have to give compressions. And then there's the optimal, uh, if you have it available. If you're fortunate enough to have a hospital that has bypass capabilities, bypass is the way to go. You can rewarm incredibly fast, up to nine, uh, 9 centigrade per hour. Um, it does not rely on any spontaneous circulation. So if they flip into asystole, there's no need for compressions because you're already perfusing the body with your bypass. It doesn't have to be sternotomy bypass. It can just be arterial venous peripheral bypass. However, you need a perfusionist. You need a TCV that's willing to do it and that's available. And it's not very successful in patients that are asystolic. Survivability of this is anywhere between 20 and 50%, which is a pretty wide range. 
And there's very poor predictors of this. Potassium over 10, uh, very poor predictor. pH less than 6.5, kind of the no-brainer stuff. And any anoxic event prior to hypothermia. So if they overdosed, um, had an anoxic injury, and then became hypothermic, secondary to that, that's a poor prognostic indicator. But you probably won't know this until after the fact. And any trauma. Uh, trauma with subsequent hypothermia it, it has almost 100% mortality below 32 uh, or co-ingestion of any toxins, substances, or, or alcohols. So back to the case. A few minutes later, uh, we got IV access. There was, uh, we lost our one peripheral IV that we had, put a cortis in the groin. Uh, we glanced at the, at the heart under the echo, and we saw maybe about five beats of this bradycystolic rhythm, and then we lost it. So we just got the the tail end of the organized electrical activity, went into fine V-fib and then asystole. Didn't spend long in fine V-fib. So we, we continued doing CPR. Dried the patient off. All fluid is hooked up to Ranger fluid warmers. We were using warm fluid anyway. Threw on some blankets and a bear hugger. And then we placed chest tubes to do warmed core, uh, or uh, active core rewarming. Bilateral 32 French, two anterior and two posterior. Um, we somehow managed to get a warm bladder irrigation system down. I'm not quite sure uh, how we pulled strings to get that. Um, and then we needed help. And so we called two of the OR teams that weren't currently operating, and they sent down four nurses to come help us because the thoracic lavage takes a lot of people. Uh, you just can't trickle the stuff in and have it trickle out onto the floor. It's an active pumping. And uh, unfortunately, we called TCV, but they were unavailable. They were already in an emergent case and could not be pulled away. This is how the thoracic lavage kind of works. You basically hang this warmed isotonic fluid. And we got these big irrigation bags and warmed them up as much as we could in microwaves. We already had some from the operating room, but they didn't last very long. Uh, you can use a gastric lavage kit or a 60cc syringe or anything you really want. You just pump it in. Uh, it's, it distills in the chest. It cools down, and the cool stuff drains out of the, the posterior chest tube. You can hook this up either just a gravity drain or to suction. The risk of the, of the gravity drain or suction is that you end up sometimes filling up the chest with fluid if, if it's just coming out to gravity, and so you can end up tamponading off your heart. After uh, about 30 minutes or so, we got the core temp up to 25.6. Our urine toxicology came back very quickly, positive for cocaine and TCAs. And that may have been uh, a real problem for us, seeing as how we had a wide complex dysrhythmia, uh, hypothermia, and now we have TCA positive urine with empty pill bottles at the, at the side of the shower. And so this, this really created a lot of issues for us because we're torn between continued resuscitation with the warming or do we treat this as a TCA overdose. Initial ABG came back below 6.8. It was below the measurable level of the pH of the machine. PCO2 was over 110, but PO2 was actually pretty good in the 40s. Um, and that's venous, uh, actually, it's not an ABG. We put in a second cortis, and we decided to push two amps of bicarb to kind of treat for a possible TCA overdose as well. Several minutes later, continued asystole. Our temp got up to 27. Drainage slowed on the right side, and so we put in a fifth chest tube to help drain the, the fluid that's collecting posteriorly. Our venous gas looked a little bit better, but it's tough to interpret because we pushed a bunch of bicarb. Um, base excess didn't look too bad, however, uh, 3.4. 25 minutes later, rewarming continues. We're up to almost 30, continued asystole. 
Venus gas doesn't look a whole lot different. Base excess continues to look okay. Oxygenation for a Venus gas and someone undergoing CPR looks okay. Mike, you started in 1944, correct? Yeah, so we're, we're an hour and a half into it right now. 1844. Okay. Right, so we're, we're about 90 minutes into it right now, just over. Yep. We really hit a ceiling here, and our core temp peaked at 30.1, and we just could not get it beyond that. It actually started to drop a little bit then. We had exhausted the entire hospital supply of warm fluids. We had every floor warming uh, bags of fluids in their uh, floor, lounge, microwaves, and we would basically run out. Um, continued to be an asystole. We couldn't quite tell if there was maybe a fine V-fib. We tried three defibrillation attempts that were unsuccessful. And we called it approximately two hours after we hit the door. Um, so about 135 minutes of CPR total. Just under an hour and a half of active core rewarming. We got it up to seven degrees. Two OR teams came down to assist with the thoracic lavage, which we wouldn't have been able to do without them. There was about 15 to 20 people involved at all time, irrigating the bladder and chest, compressions, RT bagging, nurse recording, people running back and forth to the floors getting warm fluids. And we used just over 120 liters of fluid uh, through his chest, most of which ended up on the floor. We ran out of vacuum containers. Uh, we ran out of uh, bags of fluid in the department because we were warming them as fast as we could. Uh, and we decided to call it. This is eventually what we had. Uh, we had warmed humidified air going in the ET tube. Probably didn't make much of a difference. Two chest tubes on the left, three on the right, two uh, cordis catheters with warmed fluids running in and bladder irrigation. We elected not to do the uh, peritoneal lavage. So there's always this phrase everyone hears, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. Um, this is something you hear from your intern year on. Or until you use up all the warm fluids. I really have you. Uh, and there's some information that I learned after the fact that, that you can use I didn't know. Um, tap water, hot tap water, readily available, every room has it. Equally as effective as sterile isotonic crystalloid in resuscitation. Infection profile is very similar. All these individuals get post-resuscitation infections. It's almost across the board, 75%. There's only a case series of four studying tap water. Uh, for thoracic lavage, but only one out of those four got a post-resuscitation infection in the chest. Um, superheated fluids, you can warm these things up to 49 and beyond. There's even one study that warmed them up to 56 uh, centigrade with no ill side effects. Uh, and arterial venous bypass, and we considered this, and putting a cortis in the artery and a cortis in the femoral, running it through a arranger, the big issue in a normal thermal patient is it clots, but we have no clotting activity at this temperature, so it probably would have been safe. The road bumps we hit was that we got focused on a mixed overdose, and we probably pushed, uh, or we pushed bicarb in an attempt to help combat a possible TCA overdose that may or may not have been there. The report we got several hours later is that it may have been a large Benadryl overdose, uh, which sometimes comes back positive as TCAs and some tox screens, depending on the size. Um, use of epinephrine and bicarb, uh, bicarb of course for the TCAs, but epi uh, may, have, may have worsened our, our uh, survivability. We exhausted the warm fluids, uh, however, we probably would have been safe to use warm tap water as well. And then our heat loss that we had just insensibly. And during this resuscitation, during compressions, you've got them covered up. And you have, we had warm packs on the neck, and we have 
bear huggers on the belly, but the insensible losses of someone that's not shivering is just immense. And you're always fighting this entropy. And you feel great until you get up to 30, or just better than room temperature. And then you start fighting it, as opposed to warming them up to room temperature, now the room is cooling them down. And the warming slows significantly until we spent 45 minutes to upwards of an hour at the same temperature when we're unable to get anything beyond that. Then there's resource allocation, and this becomes a real issue. Uh, on a weekend night when the waiting room is full and you have half of your nursing staff tied up with one patient for over two hours and the other patients, the chest pains, the other traumas are really piling up, eventually you're going to have to decide where you want to go with this. Is this going to be a salvageable patient? Are you, uh, are you taking resources away from other individuals that might be sick as well? The takeaway points, I guess, from this is you can't win if you don't play. And if you have these folks that come in uh, hypothermic with no or little signs of life, I think it's worthwhile to try to actively rewarm them. Um, there are many, many case reports of people asystolic in the field with core temps in the upper teens to low 20s that were successfully resuscitated with no neurologic side effects. It is not clean. It is a complete mess. The water will get everywhere. No matter how well you're draining your chest tubes, the fluid is going to squirt out the sides. No matter how much uh, you're trying to clean up your irrigation, it's going to end up all over everybody. Um, it, is, it is remarkable. I'll just say that. I, I may never ever see or do one of these again, but the resources used and the fluids used it was really remarkable. Your room will look like a swimming pool. Um, it strains the entire emergency department as well as the hospital. And we had folks running down from all the floors in order to help us out with this one. And I really must give credit to the, to the St. Luke's Hospital staff from the floor for, for donating some of their nursing care and some of their techs to help us uh, run this resuscitation. It's a lot harder than the book suggests. The book suggests a lot of things that you should do. And that includes carefully calculating the thoracic tube input and output to make sure you don't have residual fluid in the chest. When you're up to 120 liters, it really doesn't matter. Um, this is not easy, especially when compressions are going on. Uh, there's water everywhere. Your chest tubes don't want to stay in place. And you can always do it better. And so next time, if any of you ever see this, by all means, use whatever you can to rewarm them and take, uh, take the information that we just had here to, to heart. And next time you see this, if you ever see it, uh, try some of these techniques. So here's our bibliography. That's about it. Any, Any questions? questions?